pretty intimidating to blaze a new trail. I mean, if people have been walking on the same trail, it's familiar and clear. But what if there's a better way to get there? What if the whole point of the old trail is to get you to see the new trail? Jesus came to blaze a new trail. On the old trail, people's relationship with God was conditional. If we would behave, then God would be nice. And people viewed God that way for ages. It wasn't wrong, it just never seemed to work. No one could stay on course. And maybe you felt that way in your own life. You felt the pressure to perform or to act right in order to gain God's favor. And you have good days and you have bad days. Jesus came so that every day would be a good day between you and God. Jesus came to give you and me access to what the old path never quite seemed to accomplish. That feeling like you don't measure up or you're not good enough or that God is mad at you, Jesus didn't want you to ever feel that way again. Or the idea that you're not worthy enough to be in the presence of God, Jesus didn't want that to ever cross your mind again. But in order to do that, he was going to have to do something radical, unexpected, revolutionary, and certainly new. have a teacher who graded on a curve. You remember what that was about? You remember what that was like? That, that there would kind of be this idea that a certain number of people should or would get an A on the test. It could be good or bad if your teacher graded on a curve, right? I mean, so if the teacher gives a test and the teacher just imagined that five people should make an A on this test. I mean, and no one makes an A. What does that mean that the teacher does? That means the teacher scoots everybody up five spots, right? So that there will be some people who will actually get an A on a test. And that could be good news if you're in a class like that where apparently it's not the sharpest knives in the drawer in that class, right? No one made an A. And you could even be one of those people that moved from a B to an A. So that's what it, now, it could be bad news, right? It could be bad news if you are in a class, especially one that is more subjective like English, and you have some really great writers, and the teacher reads the best writer in the class's paper first. And now every other paper that they are gonna read after that, they are going to judge against that paper, right? And they're really grading you on a curve, and the curve is that the first paper they read was the best one, and they said, that's what an A paper looks like, so if yours isn't as good as theirs, well, that's bad news for you. And that's, the curve is so subjective because the curve 
depends on the year. The next year, there will be different writers in the class, or the next semester, there'll be different writers in the class, and that will change how the teacher views what an A is. And here's what I think. Most people think God grades on a curve. And just like a teacher grading on a curve, this can be good or bad. But most of us imagine that it will turn out good for us, right? Like, like you imagine that when it's all said and done, and you, we are standing before God, when we are trying to figure out how to get into heaven and all that, you just imagine that you'll be standing in line between bin Laden, Hitler, and Saddam Hussein, right? Some really bad characters, and you're like, come on, come on, God, look at me. I'm looking pretty good, right? Or you'll be standing uh, in between just like that jerk that lives in your neighborhood or that person at your work that's a really bad person or someone you see on the evening news that's a really kind of terrible individual. And you'll be like, I mean, come on, God, look at them. I'm, I'm pretty good. Have you ever considered? Have you ever thought like, what if you're standing in line between Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, and Tony Evans? How are you going to be looking then? Do you feel worse about yourself? Or what if you're standing next to like the person you respect the most and that sweet little lady who taught you Sunday school when you were a kid, who you weren't ever sure said, ever said a bad thing about anybody? How will you be feeling about yourself then? You see, I mean, like, that's the problem with this idea that God grades on a curve is that we imagine, we imagine ourselves as judged against everybody else. And we, um, we, this is the question we ask ourselves, how good is good enough? Right? How good is good enough? And most of us, most of us believe that we just have to be a little better than average. And here's the thing that's so interesting about this today is every single day you see a video of a pretty terrible person, right? On Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, there's all these kinds of viral videos of people saying, doing, acting out awful things. And every time we watch one of those videos, you know what we say to ourselves? Well, at least I'm of them, right? I mean, I'm not that, I'm not that mean, I'm not that hateful, I'm not that bad. Because most of us believe this lie. Good people go to heaven. Most of us believe the lie that good people go to heaven. Good people get to be in the presence of God for eternity. And in comparison to most people in the world, especially a lot of stuff we see today, we feel pretty good about ourselves, don't we? Well, I've got some news for you today, okay, about why this is a lie. And here's what I want to tell you. Perfect people go to heaven. Oh, oh. Or the Bible would say it probably more like this. Righteous people go to heaven. See, we've all believed that we're good. We all believe that we're better than average. But are you perfect? Are you righteous? Last week, we looked at the covenant of what was called the law. 
this covenant that God made with his people Israel, and if you weren't here, it's, it's this covenant of, of not just any kind of just any law. It's actually 613 rules in the book of Leviticus. It is solidified and kind of identified and highlighted as the Ten Commandments. And, it, and this entirely incredible and complex sacrificial system where God even set up this system where people would make sacrifices for their sins. And even once a year, the high priest would go behind this curtain that separated people from the presence of God. The presence of God rested in the holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple with the Ark of the Covenant, this chest that actually held the stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on with God's finger and God's presence rested them. And once a year, the, the high priest would go behind that curtain and make a sacrifice for atonement for the sins of the people because there was no way anyone could keep all the rules. The law points to an impossible standard. Adam and Eve had one commandment that they couldn't keep. They had this tree of knowledge of good and evil that they chose to eat from. One thing God asked them not to do. No one, it's impossible, no one could keep all 613 Levitical laws, and we don't even do so good with the Ten Commandments. You probably broke one, I probably broke one, before we even got to church this morning, before we tuned in this morning. I mean, we all struggle with that coveting thing, right? We want their car, we want their house, we want their job, we want their success, we want their money, we want our kids to be as successful as their kids, to be as talented as their kids. We want the breaks that they got in life, we covet, we want what other people want. It's probably one of the biggest ones we struggle with. You know, yesterday, a lot of, a lot of football games on. And I gotta tell you, I coveted. Because <laughs> I'm a Georgia fan. And I looked at all these teams with a quarterback, and I was like, I wonder what that'd be like. <laughs> God, can we have one of those? <laughs> right? We covet. We want what other people have. We want what other people get. We want the breaks they get. So many people might wonder then, right? How, why would God give us a law that is impossible to attain with this righteousness that seems impossible to earn and this sacrificial system that we would inevitably have to keep repeating in order to get back in the good graces of God. And the reason is the law points to his holiness. The law points to God's righteousness. Here's what we often underestimate. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous, and God wants a relationship with us, but for us to have a relationship with a holy God, we have got to be holy before him. The law dismantles the curve. The law says, I don't grade against a curve. I don't grade you against your next door neighbor. I don't grade you against your Sunday school teacher. And I don't grade you against the worst person you can think of or the best person you know. I grade you against my one standard, perfection, holiness, righteousness. So if that's true, if that's true, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure for me to come into the presence of God, something else is going to have to come into play. 
because I'm pretty sure I can't be righteous and holy, and I know I'm not perfect. And you probably know the same thing about yourself. And that's why today we're going to talk about this thing called grace. Grace is the idea, the thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion. If you don't understand the concept of grace, then you'll never understand what it means to actually follow Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. Grace is the thing that sets us apart. This is why, this is why, when someone says or people say that, you know, well, all religions are basically the same. I mean, they're all to help point you in the same direction and help you be a, a better person. We say emphatically, no. They are not all the same. And here's what I believe, that even if you're not sure where you're at with God and not sure what you believe about God, you hope grace is true because you know you've got some faults. And you know if you've got to attain something to get to God, you'll never get there. Grace is an entirely different story than every other religion paints. Every other religion says that there's some rules that we have to follow and we kind of achieve enlightenment or we get nirvana or we attain paradise or we get in, the, in a good relationship with God because of what we do and how we work our way up to God. Grace says God did it for us. Grace says God stood in the gap and did what we could never do. Grace is the concept that you have to understand if you're going to understand what it means to follow Jesus and call yourself a Christian. And Jesus is the epicenter of where God's law and where his grace meet. Jesus is where God takes the idea that sin requires death and yet that God wants to bless all people and meets in the middle. Where God's righteousness, where God's holiness, where God's perfection, and where God's love, mercy, and grace meet. See, here's what I want you to know. The law reveals the nature of God, but grace reveals the heart of God. And Jesus put the nature of God and the grace of God and wrapped it in a man born in Bethlehem who was perfect, who followed all the rules and who never sinned. Now people were okay with that. But then as Jesus grew up and he started teaching, he began to say some pretty radical things. Jesus comes on the scene into this Jewish world with this temple and this curtain where heaven met earth. I mean, that was really what the temple was thought of. You and I never think about God this way, but the Jews would actually make pilgrimage to Jerusalem once or twice a year. You know why? To visit the what? The temple. I mean, their whole relationship with God centered on the temple. God told them that, that his presence rested there and that curtain separated his presence from the people, but they could, they could sort of have a little bit of temporary access and they could temporarily be right with God until the next year on the Day of Atonement. The temple was where it was at. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says this, I tell you something, that something greater than the temple is here. Wait, hold, hold up, Jesus. The temple, Jesus, is where heaven meets earth. The temple is where our understanding of God is. The temple is where the presence of God is. And Jesus is like, right, exactly, totally. Um, 
yeah, I'm greater than that. I'm greater than that. The temple was great. Thousands of years, God set it up. But I'm telling you that something greater than the temple is here. And pretty soon, his disciples and some of his followers began to understand. And Peter was the first to say it out loud. When Peter said, hey, you, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. I, you're it. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, that's exactly right, Peter. You've got it exactly right. But I'm telling you, what they imagined was going to be the Messiah, what they imagined a, the Son of God on earth would be was something way different than what Jesus had in mind. They imagined that he would be a political or a military ruler, but he had a, an idea of what a Messiah really meant. And it turns out Jesus had come to complete the story that God had been writing for thousands of years. Jesus was sent to get the presence of God out for public consumption once again to actually bless all people. Jesus was sent to fulfill the covenant sent by God thousands of years ago. So on the last night that he was with his disciples, the last time that he was with his disciples, before he was arrested, they were celebrating the Passover meal. This was a high and holy celebration. This meal was meant to commemorate God's deliverance of the Israelite people from Egyptian slavery. For thousands of years, every year, in fact, God told them, he said, listen, I want you to celebrate this. I want you to remember Moses. I want you to remember how I delivered you. I want you to remember the Lord your God that brought you up out of Egypt. And every year you're supposed to do this. In the middle of that meal, Jesus stands up and says this. And he took the bread and gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hold on, Jesus, hold on, Jesus, hold on a second. No, 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 we're supposed to remember Moses, we're supposed to remember the Lord our God who brought us up out of Egypt, we're supposed to remember the Passover. Yeah, 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 I'll, more on that later, just listen up, not like from now on, remember me. And then, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Hey, you know, guys, how you had celebrated this meal for thousands of years, how your daddy and how your granddaddy and grandmama and how their granddaddy and grandmama and how everybody's granddaddy and grandmama that you have ever known has celebrated this for thousands of years. And you know how when we always get together for this meal every year, we always say, hey, we remember how the Lord our God brought us up out of Egypt and we remember Moses and we remember God's deliverance and then we remember the covenant that God made with us through the law. You remember all that? Yeah, yeah, we remember that, Jesus. Okay, new plan. Every time you have this meal now, I don't want you to remember them anymore. I want you to remember me. And this is a new covenant. Whoa. And isn't this pretty cool? Isn't this pretty cool? That there are churches now all across the world 
with communion tables on their altars. And on the front of them, do they say, remember the Lord our God that brought us out of Egypt? What do they say? In remembrance of me. Whoa. Like that changed 2,000 years ago. That night. That meal at that moment. Who did Jesus think he was? It was pretty bold, right? It's pretty bold. <laughs> Turns out bold was just getting started. He's arrested later that night. He's brought to trial. He's beaten. He's shamed. He's nailed to a Roman cross. He's jeered by those who are standing by. And it looks for just a moment like he is going to be just another prophet who made some big claims who will be remembered for a minute but forgotten when the next prophet comes along. There's even some people standing there at the cross when he's crucified and said, yeah, some son of God. I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself? Until he breathed his last breath. And when he breathed his last breath and died, something happened that literally shook the foundations of the earth and established the new covenant that Jeremiah had promised 600 years before and he had proclaimed one night before. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. They didn't take it. He gave it up. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier that had separated humanity from God's presence, the barrier that had, had put us in this world with this knowledge of good and evil that we, that we couldn't do anything about, this, that we couldn't change, this separation, this curtain that had separated God's love and God's life from us, when Jesus breathed his last, was torn in two and opened us up into the presence of God and the presence of God and the life of God and, and eternal life broke out for all the people. You didn't have to have a priest. A priest had broken himself before the altar to give you access to his life. Once and forevermore, now that presence was available for all people. The death of Jesus made the presence of God break out and a new covenant emerged, a covenant forged in blood, but not in the blood of any lamb, in the blood of the lamb, and a new covenant written with a death and nailed to the cross with a death, but not the death of a sacrifice every year and not my death and not your death, but the death of the Son of God. See, here's what grace is. You know what grace is? When God's relationship with us was broken, God broke himself to have a relationship with us. You didn't have to earn it. You can't attain it. You can't achieve it. I can't get it. I don't deserve it. That's grace. God paid the price that our sin deserves so that the presence of God could break out and be available so much because God would rather die than live without you. The Apostle John, who spent three years with Jesus and was there that night 
When Jesus established that new covenant around the table and was there with Jesus at the cross and was there when Jesus resurrected, he later wrote it this way. He said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That atonement that we needed, that sacrifice that was happening every year had happened once and for all. The apostle Paul would write it this way. And this might help some of what we've talked about the last two weeks and how this covenant of the law and the righteousness required to be before God come together in Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. They were all pointing to Jesus. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That means it doesn't matter if you spent the whole life trying to follow the law or if you had no idea the law existed. This righteousness is available to all who believe in Jesus Christ because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The blood of Jesus served as an atonement for our sins and justified us from our past. Now those are two really big churchy words, aren't they? But I had a seminary professor that kind of spelled it out this way, that atonement just means at one moment, I am at one with God, and when I am justified, it is justified, never done it. Amen? It's justified, never done it. It's justified, never sinned. It's justified, never made a mistake. It's justified, never, ever done it. We are not made right before God because we do right, because never of any of us ever get it right. The need for a sacrifice has been fulfilled by God himself to show his love and offer his righteousness to us. You, if only righteous people go to heaven, good news, you can be righteous through faith in God, through Jesus Christ. This is grace. When God's relationship with us was broken, God broke himself to have a relationship with us again. It's free. You don't ever again have to worry about if you can get access to God. You don't ever have to worry about if God loves you. You don't ever have to worry if you could be in the presence of God. You don't ever again have to worry if you have to live in this world where there is good and evil and there's this battle going on in your heart and soul. You, You can be done with the battles of this world and have the presence of God in your heart and in your life forever and be guaranteed that you live in the presence of God in eternity with him. That barrier that has been between you, that barrier that Adam and Eve put that we all helped build a little stronger is done, it is finished. One of the things that we get wrong still about God is that people still believe that we're in the old covenant. People say this stuff like this all the time, like, I'm just not good enough church and maybe you're tuning in online and you've been curious about it you've been watching or I'm not good enough for God or people say things like this like you know when I clean up my act a little bit then I'm gonna come back to God you ever heard that maybe you said that 
listen, you can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough because we're sinners. I'm a sinner. Ben Kirkendall, worship pastor, he's a sinner. Chris and Savannah, they're doing good work. Students, they're sinners. You're a sinner. But you can be forgiven. You just have to take a step of faith. Now, I know some of you are saying, it can't be that easy. Like, it, that's too good to be true. And Carter, you don't, <laughs> some of you are going, uh, okay, Carter, I appreciate it. You don't know what I've done. Like, you don't know how I sinned. But here's what I want to tell you. Jesus doesn't care about how dirty you think your past is. Because this table is not a table of condemnation. This table is not a table of judgment. This table is not a table of comparison. This table is not a table of anger. This table is not a table to tell you how bad you are. This table is not a table of shame or guilt. This is a table of grace. This is a table of freedom. This is a table where new covenants are made. And this is a table where you can be made new. Because this is a table where a body was broken. And blood was shed. And what it means to be a Christian is just to say yes to that. People say, well, what do I do with this kindness of God? Here's what you do with it. Paul wrote it this way. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. This is what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to confess your sins to me. <laughs> I got my own stuff. It's to say, God, I confess my sins to you and your sins will be different than mine. I repent. I want to turn from that life, God, because of your goodness, because you looked at that life and loved me anyway. And I believe that you died for those sins. And I believe that your mercy and your forgiveness covers those sin, that you are the atoning sacrifice. And Lord, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I can't figure out exactly how it works in the cosmos, but I believe that what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross changed my life. 
and sealed my eternity with you. And I believe that your son, Jesus, rose from the dead as an exclamation point on my forgiveness and to give me freedom and victory over death into eternal life. And Lord, I don't know what else to do but to receive it, but to say yes. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. But there is a savior who stood in the gap and tore down the curtain between you and his presence. If you will just say yes, the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. Would you receive it? All you have to have are open hands and an open heart to say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I want you in my life. And if you have ever wondered, that is what it means to be a Christian. That is how you take step one to follow Jesus. That is what it means to be saved. Heavenly Father, there's some of us in this room and some of us watching online that we have been trying to live up to something and it has never made sense and we could never quite earn it, we could never quite attain it, we could never get to it. And Lord, maybe today for the first time we realized that you have ushered us into the presence of the Father again. If we would just say yes, if we would just come to you with our brokenness, with our sinfulness and say, Lord, I can't do it. I'm a mess. Forgive me. I believe. I believe on the name of Jesus and I trust in his amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close out uh, this today, you got some communion elements when you came in. If you're at home, they're watching. Maybe you've got some elements for yourself. And I want to invite you to just receive those tangible examples during this closing song. And we're going to sing with the band. But also might believe this, this might be a time for you to make a decision. And we're going to have a way for you to meet up with us after. But I want to just ask you, if God's beaten on the door of your heart to do some business with God today, and that if it's never clicked with you, but today maybe something began to make sense about, is that what it means to take a step to follow Jesus? Would you just pray in your own words there and do whatever you need to do with God to let him do what he wants to do in your heart. Let's stand and receive and sing.